You're listening to Bloomberg Law. I'm Greg Storr in our Washington 99.1 studios. We're talking about the biggest legal issues of 2016. And America's voting laws were front and center during the year, both in the courtroom and on the campaign trail. In the name of fighting fraud, Republicans backed photo ID requirements and other rules that made it harder for many people, particularly racial minorities, to vote. Donald Trump fueled the fire, claiming the system was stacked against him. They even want to try to rig the election at the polling booths. And believe me, there's a lot going on. Do you ever hear these people? They say there's nothing going on. People that have died 10 years ago are still voting. Illegal immigrants are voting. Democrats, including President Obama, said there was no evidence that sort of fraud was widespread. And this whole notion of voter fraud, listen, one study shows that out of one billion votes cast, there were, exact, there, there were 31 proven cases of voter fraud. 31 out of a billion. You are luckier, you, you are much likelier to get struck by lightning than to have somebody next to you commit voter fraud. With us to talk about this big year in election law is Rebecca Green, a professor at William & Mary Law School who co-directs the election law program there. And once again, in our 99.1 studios, Kimberly Robinson of Bloomberg BNA. Kimberly, arguably the biggest court ruling of the year came in a case involving North Carolina's voting restrictions. Uh, g- give us a quick synopsis of that, please. Well, this is really an extraordinary decision. I think the important thing to keep in the back of your mind when I'm talking about this case is the fact that race and po- po- uh, voting are very much correlated in the South, especially in North Carolina. So it turns out that most minorities um, tend to vote democratically. Uh, a court here struck down uh, North Carolina's voter ID laws uh, and some other restrictions um, that it said had had surgically uh, singled out African-Americans. And it was extraordinary because there are really two ways that a court can strike down uh, some of these voting restrictions. One is if the effect has a discriminatory purpose. Um, But the other is if the intent of the legislature is to discriminate against minorities. And that final one is what the the court here said, that the legislature really intended to disenfranchise minority voters. Rebecca, in in 2008, the Supreme Court upheld Indiana's voter ID law. And now we've got this North Carolina case. There were a couple other rulings out of Texas and and, uh, Wisconsin where laws were either thrown out or or, are softened. What is going on that has prompted this change from 2008? So the case um, you're referring to is called Crawford. And in that case, the court essentially said that – that the state had a perfectly you know, valid interest in um, requiring photo identification to vote. But in that case, the plaintiffs didn't mount um, any significant evidence to show that the photo ID requirement had a discriminatory impact. And courts since Crawford, or I should say plaintiffs since Crawford, have spent a lot more time gathering evidence to show that the impact of these laws um, hit minorities harder. So that's that's sort of been the the change since the 2008 ruling. Kimberly, what do we know about where the Supreme Court stands now? We we, we talked earlier about how the, the the Texas voter ID case is is up at the Supreme Court. The court could say in the next few weeks whether it's going to going to take that case. What what do we know about the the eight current justices on this issue? Well, you know, they have been asked uh, occasionally to um, intervene in these cases to stay lower court decisions. They've largely stayed out of the fight. It seems as if um, you know they they might be trying to steer clear of this issue, but the lower courts have been 
coming to some inconsistent rulings, and maybe that the Supreme Court's hand is going to be is going to be pushed to to expect to accept one of these cases, and and we'll know more then. Rebecca, I want to talk about the issue of partisan gerrymandering. There was a, a big court case out of Wisconsin. Can you just tell us about that and what the significance is? Sure. So courts have struggled with this issue of partisan gerrymandering. It doesn't seem right that a political party in power should be able to retain power by carving up districts to its own advantage. But so long as legislatures have authority to draw lines, um, you know, partisanship is going to be part of the process. So the problem is determining when is partisanship excessive in the line drawing process. And the Supreme Court really hasn't settled on a satisfactory way to measure when partisanship becomes excessive. And that's why this Wisconsin ruling called Whitford uh, seems so promising, because uh, it provides a way to measure excessive line drawing by using math, of all things. So um, the, the theory that, that the case adopts is called the efficiency gap theory, which is, without getting too technical, a way to measure the number of wasted votes in a district. So if a candidate, for example, would need only 50 percent uh, of the votes plus one to win, um, if you have a district, say, where the candidate wins by 90 percent, then you have quite a few wasted votes. And so what this what this measure does is essentially take the number of wasted votes uh, and divide it by the number of total votes cast, and, and from that you get um, uh, from that you get you come up with a percentage. And the plaintiffs in that case basically said, if the percentage is over a certain threshold, um, this provides evidence of excessive partisanship in line drawing. It's important to note that that's not the end of the analysis, that once that um, threshold has been crossed, the court would then look at the process itself for red flags, like, for example, if the opposing political party was shut out of the process or if it wasn't transparent. Um, so it's a very promising... Rebecca, Go ahead. Rebecca, let me ask you about the impact of it. What do you yeah. think? So, so if this, this theory uh, gets adopted uh, by the Supreme Court, uh, how, you know, what, what kind of constraints is that going to put on on legislatures that are trying to draw the lines to uh, keep themselves in power? So I think that they're going to start spending time thinking about um, the, uh, the that threshold and whether or not they are purposely, in effect, wasting votes. I think they'll also take great care um, with the process itself to make sure that if that threshold is passed by the numbers, that the, that they can sort of win on the merits of having an open and fair process. Um, but it's hard to say, um, you know, uh, how much this can be gamed, because although it feels nice to have a mathematical formula, um, in, in practice, this is often a lot more messy. Kimberly, you th- does this uh, uh, seem like it has the potential to, to sway the Supreme Court? In particular, Justice Kennedy has been the one who's at the center of, uh, of this issue. Well, I think this is it's highly likely that this case will be heard by the Supreme Court. And that's because these redistricting cases are somewhat special in that, you know, they, they kind of have an automatic appeal to the Supreme Court, unlike the other cases that the court can just turn away and they, they don't have any any um, value beyond that. Um, in, in a case like this, if the justices were to turn it away, it would, it would mean something more than in the other cases. Uh, and I think instead of just turning it away without saying anything, I, I do think that the Supreme Court's going to want to weigh in on, on such a big issue that they've been struggling with in the past. 
Rebecca, let me ask you just a broader question. As you look back on, on 2016, uh, so much happened th- this year, both the cases we're talking about, uh, the allegations of, of a rigged election, um, you know, talk of the Electoral College and, and faithless electors who might or might not vote for, for Donald Trump. What, what do you think is the, the, the big message, the big takeaway from this, this year in, in election law? Yeah, so um, for me, as I sort of look back at it all, I think what is clear is the fragility of public confidence in our elections. You know, elections only work if the public has confidence in the outcome. Um, And that confidence was under explicit attack in 2016, as your opening clip sort of demonstrated. We have a long history, of course, of the losing side alleging fraud in elections, but this year felt very different, right? We had the integrity of the election being called into the question before uh, Election Day. Uh, That said, what's extraordinary extraordinary also about 2016 is how smoothly the election actually went. Um, Before the election, uh, voting rights advocates were bracing for widespread problems at the polls, but as it happened, um, with few few exceptions, uh, the election proceeded without major incident. So I think the challenge going forward is figuring out how to shore up public confidence in our elections. Some think the way to do this is to tighten election rules. Um, others see this tightening as a pretext, a way to restrict certain people from accessing the ballot. So figuring out how to navigate between those two perspectives seems to be the difficult task ahead. We are going to have to leave it there. I want to thank our guests, Rebecca Green of William & Mary Law School and Kimberly Robinson of Bloomberg BNA. Coming up, we're going to talk about the year in financial regulation and securities law. Uh, That will be uh, a big topic for our listeners. It has to do with some major banks. You're listening to Bloomberg Law. This is Bloomberg. 